From SGI USA, I'm Cassidy Bradford, and this is Buddhability. The weekly series where I talk with Buddhists from all walks of life about the power we each have to change our lives and the world around us. This week, we asked you to name an animated TV series or film that is totally Buddhist. I learned that our listeners really love animation. You guys totally showed up with answers, so it was hard to pick just one or two. Kung Fu Panda came up quite a lot. One listener wrote that the whole message of the film is that there's no magic or superpower other than what already exists inside your own life. Another top response was Demon Slayer. The main character trains to become the best version of himself. And the show approaches the complexity of good and evil in a very Buddhist way. One listener quoted Mulan, a favorite film of mine, the flower that blooms in adversity is the most rare and beautiful of all. And a few honorable mentions go to Inside Out, Soul, Spirited Away, and The Croods. With all of your answers, the theme was clear. Challenges make us stronger, and everything we need is already inside us. Our show today is a story just like that. Today's guest, Kyle Maharlika Roper of Miami, shares how through a series of challenges, he developed the courage to pursue his childhood dream. My name is Kyle Maharlika Roper. I live in Miami, Florida. I am 31 years old. I currently work as a studio manager for Animation Studio. I also work as an executive assistant for a nonprofit organization. So I know you just introduced yourself with two jobs, and we'll be talking a little bit about your career journey. With that in mind, I wanted to start out just by asking you, you know, if you had any dreams when you were growing up? For sure. So I actually had a dream when I was younger. Whenever anyone would ask me, I would say, I want to be an artist when I grew up. I kept saying that until I was about nine years old. One of my teachers decided to ask me that question, and I was like, oh, great, like I can tell her what I am <laughs> into. And so I told her, yeah, I want to be an artist when I grow up. And actually the response that I got was so the opposite of what I was expecting. She ended up saying, oh, yeah, that's a waste of your time. Like you should not do that. And you wow. are too smart for that. You should become a doctor, lawyer, or a computer engineer. <laughs> I remember thinking like, oh man, those are not really that appealing, but maybe computer engineer, like software type person would appeal to me. And so that was how I made my decision. I let that teacher tell me what to do. <laughs> and I just thought that maybe she knew better than me because she was older and I didn't really have anyone encouraging me otherwise. So yeah, I gave up drawing. Like I remember, I think it was like that week, I was like, yeah, I guess it's pointless. So I'm not gonna really do art anymore and transition into setting my sights on like eventually becoming a software developer. That is such a quick shift. But I think when you're so young and an adult who's like in a position of authority tells you, you know, don't waste your time on this, you should do this. It, it makes sense to kind of just go, oh, okay. Before you ended up going down the technology route, were there any moments that you felt like, oh, maybe I do want to go back to art? So actually, I would always think about it like hmm. over and over again. And I would have these moments where I would like go long periods without drawing. And then I would like somehow something would make me interested again. And like I would try again, but I would 
be like, yeah, but it's not a really good use of my time. And I would ha just have that voice in the back of my head that's like, this is not a good use of your time, so mm -hmm. you should do something else. The older I got, I think in high school when I started thinking about it again, I remember trying to draw a portrait and I thought it was okay, but I was looking at it, I was so self-critical and I was just like, oh, it's so bad, I should stop drawing. But even with that, like I would still think about it over and over again and find myself in the company of other artists or <laughs> other things. <laughs> so it's just something always like bringing me back for whatever reason. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, there are these passions or interests that either like, you know, we really explore them and then we're done or they kind of keep coming back. So it's interesting to hear that this was something that always maybe you were yearning for, but didn't quite like take the leap to pursue it. After high school, did you go to college for software engineering or like what was your path? Yeah, so I went to University of Florida and then I studied software development. So I got into that school fully convinced that that was my major. I was just like, yeah, well, that's what I decided when I was 10. So <laughs> like, <laughs> this is what I'm gonna do. And yeah, those years were really hard. I mean, the software development, the degree is challenging, but I think it was also hard because I was dealing with so much of that same theme of perfectionism that was kind of keeping me from my art and has been the theme throughout my life, like kind of me battling that in some way and trying to overcome it to be able to do stuff that I wanted to. But uh, yeah, studying software development was great because it did teach me how to learn. And I really didn't have any other choices. I was just like, this is it. Yeah, let me just power through. This is the decision. This is my path, mm -hmm. done. So then after you graduated, did you go straight into the field? So I was very fortunate in my undergrad to get a job with one of the biggest technology companies as a software development intern. And I had that experience under my belt. So when I did graduate, I actually got a job as an intern at a local startup company. And I started mm. as an unpaid intern. And that quickly turned into becoming a paid intern and then a paid software developer. And then within the span of a few short years, becoming the standing chief technology officer of the company. It was very crazy. I was not expecting that to happen. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I almost didn't even want to take on the role, but mm. I ended up taking it on because the most important thing to me in my life has been like, if it's something that's going to help me grow, then why not take the opportunity? And I, I don't regret it, but I think at the end of that tenure, I started to realize I just felt like I was there out of obligation. And I, I accomplished many things at that company while I was there. You know, there was one summer that I'll never forget where we had to rebuild the product and I, I had to learn how to manage people, how to lead a team of software developers, and at the same time, communicate to the CEO and the, our stakeholders like what was going on. And I'm really young and I had no idea what I was doing. And I was just Googling and watching YouTube videos about how to manage. It was one of the things I was proudest of, but even with that under my belt, I, I started to feel this sense of like, mm, something about me being here just feels like I'm just here because I feel like I have to be. And I, I feel like I've got to break that <laughs> somehow, some way. It's interesting that 
like a aspect of who you are is like if something's gonna help you grow you you do it and I feel like that's so Buddhist <laughs> like the core of you know our like attitude as Buddhists is like okay this is an opportunity to grow so as you were there and started to feel like oh I'm just doing this because I have to or like out of obligation or I feel like I should be here what did you do in that moment I mean it sounds like it was maybe like you were hitting a bit of a dead end yeah during this time in my job when I started to feel stuck I was getting burnt out a lot where it took me like two weeks each time to recover I had to use vacation time in order to kind of work my way through whatever was going on within me but my life was really just calling to me and being like, man, you need to change something and you mm. know that you're not happy here, so what are you doing? The first time I was just like, okay, I'm just gonna get back to work and then I quickly got burnt out again. And then <laughs> I was like, okay, I gotta change something. So I started to explore different modes of spirituality. I actually was practicing mindfulness meditation, but it was very secular. I knew it came from Buddhist practices but I had been doing that for quite a while and it did help me with my perfectionism, but it was really not helping me break through anymore, this like sense of mm -hmm. being stuck. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, really what I needed was courage at that time and it just wasn't giving me that. Like it was giving me a lot of emotional awareness, but it wasn't giving me that sense of like, I need to find something within me that can break this fear of doing something outside of the norm of what I've been used to or what's safe. I mean, I had been opened up a little bit by my Buddhist mindfulness meditation to different spiritual practices. But now I was like full blown, like I need something that's going to help me through this because life has to be more about something than just going to work at a job that you're miserable in like every single day and thinking like, this is it. This is all I'm ever going to do. So I started seeking different spiritual practices and honestly, I was open to anything that would come my way. So I was doing all sorts of prayers from different religions. I was trying out Hindu prayers and Christian prayers and Native American practices and like getting super into astrology and reading tarot cards and collecting crystals and going and seeing psychic people and all these things. You were doing it all. Right, yeah, so it was kind of crazy. But I, I kind of treated it like, okay, it's like darts on a dartboard. Like one of these darts is gonna <laughs> land and I'm just gonna keep throwing them until one of them lands at the bullseye. And what I was really looking for at that time was like this thing, like what I called my best self. I didn't know what that meant. I just used those words. Like I wanted to become my best self and whatever one of these things was gonna help me do that, that's what I wanted. So I kept trying things and going to a lot of events and going to a lot of social gatherings. I just felt like I'm not getting what I want out of any of this stuff. You know, I was reflecting a lot and whatever, but I would go to these things and then like I'm being promised that something will happen and then nothing happens. And I'm like, well, <laughs> like, I don't know that I necessarily also feel any better after doing any of these things. I was just like, you know what? Like the only thing that's ever resonated with me is Buddhism. So I'm just gonna look for Buddhism. And I actually found two Buddhist groups at the same time. And one of them was a t like a Tibetan Buddhist group. And then the other one was an SGI, Nichiren Buddhist group. 
the way I met the SGI Nitrin Buddhist practice was very interesting. And this woman who I befriended at my friend's dance recital, I kept seeing her in my environment and like I just kept thinking like, man, I like really like this person for some reason. I always thought she was super funny. And so one day I met her and then she added me on Facebook. And uh, a week later after meeting her, I read this post about a musician. And for me, it was really cool because this person was like fully themselves. Um, and I was a DJ at the time and they were using Nam-myoho Ringe-kyo to like fuel their music. And I was like, this person's black and transgender and Canadian and they're a musician. And I'm like, this is so cool. I can't believe like they can be themselves in this practice. And and just the thought of like using chanting Nami Horunga Kyo to fuel your music. I was like, wow, that sounds so appealing to me. And I decided to post that article online. And I was like, no one is going to read this. Like, I have no idea why I'm posting this. And then the person who I met the week prior reached out to me and she was like, hey, do you practice Buddhism? And I was like, oh, I mean, I guess so. And like in one way or another, but like I wouldn't call myself a Buddhist. And then she told me that she was a SGI Nitrin Buddhist. And she said, you should come out to one of our meetings because you just posted about the thing that we do. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's cool. So um, I did. I, I mean, I ended up deciding to go there. So that was like kind of my intro into the practice, which was pretty crazy. Yeah, that is so wild. I, I'm wondering what were your first impressions of the SGI Nitrin Buddhist group and the community? Yeah, so one of the coolest things I mean, you know, it's in Miami, so it, it will be diverse. But mm. I think that was one thing that I immediately noticed was like how diverse everyone was. That had been really important to me like my whole life because of my identity. My background is very diverse itself. But mm. I showed up and I was like, wow, like these people are like from all over the place. Not what I was expecting. And many of the Buddhist groups that I've been to before had mostly been like either all Asian or mostly like white college educated people. So I was like, wow, this is really interesting. <laughs> and then I just remember hearing the sound, but because I was so open, I didn't really think twice about it. I just sat down and they're like chanting, Nam-myoho-renge-kyo over again, over again. I remember my first impression of chanting was that I felt very safe. Like I had not felt that way in a long time, like kind mm. of rooted and safe in the sense of like safety within myself that had been gone for like years. So I just felt that sense of courage like really rise up within me. Everything everyone was saying was so in alignment with like my true beliefs, valuing like my own life. And they really encouraged me to test out the practice. And so I really took to it and I just ran with it like <laughs> because I was so open. <laughs> but it was so open and welcoming. Like everyone was so warm that I was like, okay, like, I think I need to continue here. Mm, wow. So when you kind of like just really started running for it, what did your practice look like in the beginning? Was there anything in particular you were chanting about? So what I was looking for was actual proof <laughs> because that's what that's what people were saying like you got to prove it to yourself like don't trust anything we're saying which i really mm -hmm. liked i was like they have so much confidence in it that they like 
knew that something would occur. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know anything was going to occur. I just like was like, okay, I want my best self. And so at the beginning of my practice, you know, I really dived in 100% because I was looking for that thing and I had gotten this like inkling of like, oh, you should do this. <laughs> and so someone in the community really encouraged me to try chanting twice a day and to do it consistently. So I was like, okay. Um, so I just picked 10 minutes and I chanted morning and evening and I, I did that for about two weeks straight. I was starting a nonprofit at the time, which was for LGBT Asian people in South Florida. <laughs> it's very specific, but you know, I just felt like this is where I was at at the time. I wanted to create this like social group and I started chanting to find a co-founder for that nonprofit. So I did that every day for two weeks. And kind of the strategy was like chant, take action, and then see what happens. And I was like, all right, I can do that. That's very simple. So I chanted for that thing. I took action, which I put out like a, like a video that was telling everyone like, I'm looking for people to join this group. And is there anyone out there who would really like to join? This is when our first general body meeting is, blah, blah, blah. And then I held the first general body meeting. Six people showed up. I was hoping there would be more, but it was six. And three of them were my friends from Orlando. And because it was a local social organization, I knew they were not going to join. <laughs> but they were very supportive, which I'm appreciative of. Two of them were from other community organizations that just wanted to partner with us because they thought what we were doing was like super cool, but they were not going to join. And then there was this one person who showed up who really showed an interest. Like she was like, wow, you know, I really love what you're trying to do. Like, what can I do to help you? And then I, I made the ask of her in that moment and said like, will you be my co-founder? And then she said, yes. And I was like, wow, amazing. But I still had this like, lingering doubt in my mind that was still there that was like, well, how do I know is the chanting though? It could have just been because I took action and it's a valid, you know, response to that. But I had felt enough of like, well, it's not that nothing happened. So at least I, my prayer was answered. So I wouldn't find the answer to that until a week later. And somehow me and her got into a conversation about spirituality. And then she asked me, do you have any spiritual practice? And I was like, oh yeah, I just started chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo. Like, have you ever heard of that before? And then she said, yes, because my best friend introduced me to the practice in New York City and he chants Nam-myoho-renge-kyo and I have been chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo as well. And I was like, wow. so floored at that. And I was like, no way, what's the likelihood? <laughs> it was just, so oh statistically God. unlikely when I really think about it, because if you live in South Florida, there's not a lot of Asian people in South Florida. So to add like LGBT on top of that and then chanting Nami Horge Kyo, I was like, there's no way that this wasn't because of the practice. That was my first experience. I'll never forget it. And I was like, there's no freaking way that that just <laughs> happened to me. <laughs> wow. So then after seeing that, were you like, okay, I'm all in. I fully identify as Buddhist now, or did it take like more time or experiences <laughs> to feel like, okay, this yeah. is it? 
I think that was definitely the strongest start that I could have asked for. So <laughs> I, I don't know that I was like calling myself a Buddhist per se, like by that mm -hmm. point in time, but I was definitely like, I gotta stick to this. Like whatever this is, I need to keep doing it because this is the only thing that has produced this kind of a result for me, like to this point in time. That was so clear. So I think what started to really solidify for me was I remember that there was someone in the community who told me when you chant Nami Horunge Kyo or you practice this Buddhism, that like seven generations of your family lineage, like forward and, and backward, receives the benefit or like the protection of your practice. Again, me at the time, I was always thinking like, how do I, well, how are you, how do you know that? Like, <laughs> how, how am I supposed to know that? How is any of us supposed to know that? Mm. And so I had this very like subtly defiant attitude. And then what happened was I was chanting one day and my mom heard me and then I walked out of the room and she was like, hey, are you chanting Nam Myoho Kyo? To this point in time, I had never heard my mom ever say Nam Myoho Kyo. And she said it perfectly with perfect pronunciation. And I was like, yes, it, do you know about it? Like, it sounds like you've, you've heard it before. And she's like, yes, because when I was a little girl, my grandmother used to invite me to chant with her. That's when I really like started to feel like, wow, this mm -hmm. practice had to have like been in my life in some way, shape or form, like kind of waiting for me in some way, but it was just waiting for me to be open enough. And, and that's to say like, it's not outside of me, but like kind of the seed that was within me that wanted to be like awakened to this like practice was like ready to blossom. I was chasing that and somehow I ended up finding it. So that, I think that was where I was like, okay, like I really, <laughs> I really need to just stick with this. So I, I kind of made my commitment from that day forward that I, I must be here for a reason, but yeah, there started to build. And then I had a number of other experiences that kind of helped me build that confidence that like, wow, you know, when you use this practice, like you can really change so much in your life. So yeah. Hmm. That, I mean, both of those experiences are really kind of mind blowing. And the law of cause and effect that, you know, we practice, we refer to it as the mystic law of cause and effect. You know, there are some mm. things that like we can very visibly see as like, you know, making cause, seeing the effects, but there's so much that is kind of like under the surface that we're not always, it aren't readily apparent, right? Until they manifest mm. in this kind of experience of your mom sharing Nam Yoho Denge Kyo and you realize, oh wow, this practice is actually in my family and I had no idea. So you mentioned like having multiple kind of experiences after that that helped you develop confidence in your Buddhist practice and in the power of your life. So I'm wondering if there's any experience in particular that really developed your confidence kind of in a new way. One that I'll never forget is I was riding my bicycle at a four-way intersection and a pickup truck stopped at the four-way stop. And then I thought that he was stopped completely so i started riding my bicycle for it and he actually accelerated straight into me afterward and knocked me off my bicycle and i almost thought he was going to run over me to be honest but i was so shocked and you know my body just went into a state of shock because i was like am i gonna die like is this the end of my life like i have no idea what's happening right now so i remember when that happened i just like burst into tears and i was like what is going on like i don't know i don't yeah. understand anything 
I went to the hospital. They were shocked at my condition because they were like, you got hit by a pickup truck and you don't seem <laughs> to be all that bad. So I was like, oh, that well, that's good, I guess. And they did x-rays and et cetera. And they, they said that I was okay. So even though I was like terrified at the same time, I was just like, all right, I'm going to go home now. They told me that nothing is wrong with me. So I'm just going to like try to lay low and heal. But of course, somebody's got to pay those medical bills. So we started an insurance dispute and the beginning of a longer journey began. I was like, man, how am I going to deal with these like medical bills? Like, I don't really know. Is the insurance going to cover them? I started to chant for the right people to help me because to this point in time, I was like, okay, well, when I've chanted for this before, like somehow the right people <laughs> appear in my mm -hmm. environment. So I'm going to do it again. I was chanting for the right doctor and the right like professionals to help me. And so one day my, my husband, he stopped me. He was like, Hey, you, you should really consider like going to my old chiropractor. And I was like, why? The doctors at the hospital, after they took the x-ray, said that there's nothing wrong. But because I had been chanting that way, I was like, okay, well, maybe, maybe they'll find something. But I was really doubtful. I was like, I don't know if I'm just wasting more money by going to this chiropractor, but I'm going to go because my husband told me that I should. Uh, I remember walking into this woman's office and she was really just so helpful. And I was like, this is unusual. Because she was so busy, too, on top of that. But she noted that my lawyer wasn't responding and not being very responsive. She was like, I have a great lawyer. Like, you should really meet this person. I was like, okay, great. Then she also, like, just continued to take care of me. And she was like, you have to get an MRI. Like, they didn't do an MRI with you. You have to go get one. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess so, I guess. So I went to go get it. And then I found out that I actually had a fracture in my knee that they didn't catch at the hospital. Oh and the funny God. thing about that is that same exact thing happened to me when I was little. When I was about three years old, I was, went down a slide at the playground and then landed on my back on the floor. And actually a man stepped on my right <gasps> knee and my mom took me to the hospital. And then the people at the hospital said that there was nothing wrong and that I should just go home. And my mom was like, that sounds wrong. So she went to another hospital and they were like, his knee is broken, dude. Like, you, <laughs> you, this is broken. So it was like, I kind of noted that this was like, oh, interesting karmic pattern. Like I was like, oh, with this knee? Like why this knee? I have no idea. But that's when I started to think of this concept of like lessening karmic retribution. Lessening karmic retribution is this concept that's all about like when you practice in rhythm with the Lotus Sutra, which again is like living in the true way of believing in your infinite potential and that of all other people that they all have Buddhahood or inherent enlightenment and therefore they are all worthy of dignity and respect that like you can absolve these like karmic patterns. And if you do experience the, the effects of any of your like quote unquote negative karma, you would receive it in a lesser form. So for me, I was like, hmm, <laughs> because it was so similar that I was like, okay, maybe this is what's happening right now. And mm. I really started to see that that's what was going on. So anyway, fast forward, I go get the MRI, my knee is broken, I get crutches and I start walking around on them because I don't want to put pressure on my leg. 
One thing I always noticed about this particular chiropractor was that she had Buddhist images like all over her office. I was just like, okay, maybe she just like really likes Buddhism and like she did like Eastern medicine and whatever. So I just decided to ask her because I had really liked her. Like, are you Buddhist? And then she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm Buddhist. Actually, I chant Nam Myoho Kyo. And wow. I was again super shocked because that happened to me before with the first experience. <laughs> that I had had and I was like, there is no way you're lying to me like again. Like you, you have to be lying. And what ended up happening in the end is she was super helpful. She was able to help me get the insurance to like cover the expenses. And in the end, like after everything, the lawyer helped me secure the dollars and was very fair. I actually got like money back from the experience rather than like wow. owing anything. So I was like, wow. What I thought was going to become a like horrible experience actually deepened my faith even more than mm. I had expected it to. <laughs> so wow. we have that concept of transforming poison into medicine. For me, I think like that experience just transformed into the medicine of like deepening my faith and like really showing me like oh, you just have to keep going forward. Like even if you're not understanding what's going on right now, you will mm. see in the end like what will happen. So yeah, just crazy. I think the concept of turning poison into medicine is one that's like commonly used and referenced because it's so foundational, I think, to like the attitude and perspective that we have as Buddhists, meaning that anything that can seemingly be a poison, something that's difficult, painful, we can actually transform it into something nourishing for our life and like that supports our life. And yeah, this is a great example of that, of that concept. So then as you're really like deepening your faith in this practice and conviction and the power of your life, what was happening with your job? I mean, I know that was kind of the original reason you started your Buddhist practice. <laughs> Did anything mm -hmm. like move with that in the, like these first few years of your practice? Yeah, all along the way, I think the creativity in my heart like started to really resurge. So I didn't, I didn't mm. mention that, but it started to like come out again when I started chanting. You know, I think it's like inevitable because so much of the Buddhist community will tell you, "What's your dream? Go after it! Like you have to go after your dream." And there's so many people encouraging you in that way, and so it's like you can't help but start to think like uh, about those things again after a while yeah. because everyone is like really <laughs> encouraging you that way. So it's one of the things I love the most is just like being in that environment. So, you know, I was DJing at the time and I hit a plateau again and I was like, well, what, what's something that I like really could commit the rest of my life to and what's something that I always wanted to do? And I remembered like, hey, didn't you always want to be an artist? Like when you were younger, why don't you just start doing that again? So, in the middle of like me chanting, I started to believe that that was possible for me again. But it started very small, so it didn't start with like me immediately being like, I'm gonna be an artist again. It was really like <laughs> subtle, where I was like, let me just try drawing this month again. And like, let me take this class and let me see if like I can challenge myself to like do this thing. And I remember I started drawing during October, there's this like, big challenge with pen and ink in October where all these people on Instagram will post that every day they're drawing something and I decided to participate. I really surprised myself with like 
how quickly I was improving every single day, like drawing just one thing every single day. And I started to see like, wow, you know, maybe there's like something here <laughs> again. And I just kept snowballing. Like I kept chanting about it and trying to find the right teachers. And I started to get really serious where I was like taking classes with really amazing teachers who were kind and investing their time into me. And I had some teachers who were also like really discouraging along the way, which I also see as like my benefit to challenge me to believe in myself in those circumstances. So yeah, this like started to emerge and one day I made this like really profound determination inside of me where after kind of that crazy experience with the car and like being able to overcome that along with so many other experiences that we don't have time for, I just felt this sense of like, if I'm gonna go for this, now is the time. I had realized like that I could work in animation based on like my professional experience. I had done a lot of administrative project management work and I was like, oh man, I could really transition into the industry as like this very logistical type of role because every animation company like needs those types of people too, not just artists. And then eventually I would make my way into doing art. So I just had maybe a lot of belief in myself built to this point, <laughs> to the point that I was like, okay, I'm gonna make this happen. So I saved up three months of rent and I quit my job. <laughs> and I told my boss like a year before that I was like, I'm gonna leave in a year. This is when I'm gonna make this happen and I'm gonna make this leap to like work in animation. And she was like, go for it. So I had the fortune of like really a super supportive boss who was like, if you ever run a money or you need work, like you can work with us, but yeah, go for it. And everyone was really supportive. That was one of my benefits in my practice is like my husband was super supportive. My family was really supportive. Everyone around me was kind of telling me go for it. And I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. So I did, but I had no idea how competitive animation was. So what was originally like a courageous leap turned into what felt like falling without a parachute. Like it just felt like I was plummeting toward the earth and I had no <laughs> parachute. And by month three, I still had no replies from any of the jobs I had applied for. I was applying every single day, like it was my job and investing so much energy into every single application. I was like so sure that everyone would go through but nothing. And I remember by month two or so, I started to get really depressed and started to think like, I think there's something wrong with me. I thought that I was this really important person and that this was like the, the dream that I had, but actually this was like a stupid mistake. I don't know why I did it this way. And it just really, the doubt started to set in and I had never been through such a dark period. Like I really, felt this sense of hopelessness and this sense of like, that I'm not gonna make it. And some of my friends even started to say that to me and I was like, kind of like almost bent on believing them, but there was always this little part of me that was like, you have to do it. Like you, you went full in, you have to do it. And I was like, okay, fine, I have to do it, but I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so, um, but during that time, part of the thing that really helped me move forward was I never stopped participating in activities to support the Buddhist community, just running fully. And part of the reason is because of, well, I'll read a quote that 
kind of explains like why I was so gung-ho on it. <laughs> um, this is a quote from Buddhist philosopher Daisaku Ikeda, who I consider my mentor. And it says, Nichiren Daishonin states, where there is unseen virtue, there will be visible reward. Buddhism expounds the causal law of life. SGI, Nichiren Buddhist activities, are all Buddhist practice, and the greater effort we put into them, the greater our benefit and good fortune. When we realize this, we feel tremendous joy and gratitude for simply being able to work for Kosen Rufu or, in layman's terms, world peace, whether people recognize our efforts or not. The spirit of gratitude, in turn, further increases our benefit and good fortune. So, kind of just held that in my heart. I was like, okay, well, I've seen things change before <laughs> I really committed myself in this way to work for the happiness of others. And so if I just keep doing that as many times as I can during this unemployment period, then one of these things is going to have to give. But I was still like really not seeing the results that I was looking for and I was starting to get really discouraged. Yeah, <laughs> it was a hard time. Thank you so much for sharing that. As I was listening to you, I was thinking about like the current job market and a lot of friends that I have or people that I know that are really in the thick of trying to search for jobs and just it really takes a toll on like your self-worth, I think, you know, mm -hmm. receiving rejections right. or not getting anything. And so I think that kind of experience many people resonate with. In the thick of it, at like kind of the darkest time, how did you continue to pull yourself forward instead of give up? Mm -hmm. Especially when giving yeah. up just really feels like so close. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It felt like almost sometimes felt like the right or the most logical decision to make. So I think what really helped me pull through was, was actually the activities themselves because I couldn't wallow in this sense of like worthlessness because every day that I showed up to support another person or showing up for this activity where other people were benefiting from my actions, I was showing myself like, actually, I still have worth. I'm clearly still benefiting these people, even though nobody's responding to me in this work world. But I am showing up here and these people are showing me appreciation for the actions that I'm taking. And I'm showing myself the actions that I'm taking here to help other people become happy are helping them. So I have to keep going. So it helped me stay out of the funk enough. I mean, of course, I, like when I was away from the activities, I would sink back into it. But I would always push myself to like really go back and just offer my time and my energy in some way. And I never regretted it. Like always I would feel better afterward. It's not magic, but it felt like, you know, it was like, wow, this is like the only thing that I can do where I will commit myself so much and I get more back than I gave. <laughs> like, in a way. Mm, totally. So, in my own experience, like agreeing to like get together with somebody to chant, for example, on like a Monday night. Mondays are so rough for me. I'm so tired. And after work, I'm like, oh, I don't, I really don't want to do this. And then as soon as I get to that person's house, as soon as I see them, I'm like, wow, I feel so much better. I'm so glad I did this. And I feel like kind of signing ourselves up for, in a sense, like doing things to support other people is like, for me, almost like this 
protection to keep my life moving forward and not sink so deep into self-pity that I can't dig myself mm-hmm. back out, you know? So I definitely, right. your experience really resonates with me. So you keep moving forward, not giving up. And what mm-hmm. happens? Does something finally give? Yeah. How long does it take? <laughs> right. right. So yeah, I kept moving forward and yeah, something did happen. So I had decided to challenge myself in this way that I'd never done before. Cause I, you know, in our practice, I think we, we say that enlightenment is not just for us. Like it's for other people too. The best way of living is to share it with others. And so I challenged myself this one month and I, you know, I saw nothing moving in, in the realm of my career still, like still nobody responding to me. But I was just like, you know what? I'm going to challenge myself to really share this practice. That was really hard because I was like, who am I going to share it with? But I remember I would just do errands and always thinking like the person behind the counter, thinking like, well, I've gained so much from my practice. So even if I don't say it the right way or whatever, like if my wish is for this other person to also gain what I got from my practice, even though I'm afraid and like a lot of times I was like really scared of how they would judge me. And a lot of times I was like hesitating and not really sure like how to talk about it. But I think breaking that hesitation and just being like, you know what, like this person, just by knowing about Naomi Horinga Kyo, even if they don't practice it right now, just knowing about the philosophy of like, true dignity and respect for all human beings like they will benefit somehow from this action and they will start their own journey toward like their happiness just like i have and i talked to another person in the community about it and they were like just challenge yourself to do it and you'll build that courage so i was like okay i want to be a courageous person so i i did it and after that first time i was like wow you know like she didn't react the way that i thought she might or <laughs> you know she didn't even like push against me she was really curious and in some of the people i introduced they already knew about it which was wow. really cool to like see that they were meeting it again and i remember by day eight that i had built up such a such a barrier against this fear of rejection which was really connected with that like my job search because mm-hmm. you fear being rejected for sharing something that you really care about with another person. I just care that like maybe they, that this will help them become happy. And so I remember I had this like really weird like moment where I was like, you know what, even if it takes me like 10 years to get a job in animation, I just am so grateful that I can go after my dream and there are all these people who are supporting me. And I don't know what happened in the the process. I just feel like my sense of gratitude and my life really opened up. And I had this like really profound like courage again to go after this one company that I kept seeing that was working for diversity and animation, which again, since the beginning I've cared about. And I just emailed them and I emailed them again. And then I messaged the founders on LinkedIn. And I was like, I just want to help you with your mission. Like, I just want to support you with the work that you're doing, because I think it's so cool. And this is my background. And this is what I can offer to you and what I think I can help you with based on what I have. And not from this sense of desperation, which is where I was coming at it from before, but really understanding like, okay, like I have something to add to your company. Unexpectedly, they actually responded and one of the founders was like, 
actually, we're trying to make this work because we have a position open and we've been looking for someone. So just hold tight. What happened was he actually was able to schedule me in like to interview with him like within the week. And then the next week I had a job. And uh, originally <laughs> I thought that I wasn't going to be paid because I was like offering my help for free. <laughs> it oh was so gosh. like, I just want to work in the industry. Like anything is great. And then he was like, absolutely not. We're definitely gonna pay you. We're gonna make sure that you have something that can hold you down. And so I went from having no responses to having a job, like all of a sudden. And so that was so crazy. My first day on the job, I got to know all of these people. They were so amazing and they were so helpful. And everyone was so warm, just so hardworking too. And like really believed in the mission of the company. You know, they say it's darkest before the dawn. It really is. Like, that's the way that I saw it. I was like, wow, this is the dawn. Like, this is the dawn I was waiting for. And when I got the job and when, even when I got the interview, I remember this sense of explosive joy that I had. I literally jumped up and ran around my apartment because I was so excited. I think it's like, honestly, the, the news that I was the most excited about my entire life because it was like mm -hmm. that one step toward my dream to say like, I'm going toward my childhood dream, which is so hard to believe. That is, oh my God, I'm, I'm feeling the joy. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so excited <laughs> hearing this experience because it takes so much courage, I think, to go after a childhood dream that was kind of squashed, you know, early mm. on. And so you took this completely different path that someone told you was the right one. And with time through your Buddhist practice, like really developing the belief that you deserve to be happy and have all of your dreams and the courage to take action to go for it. Because mm. it's also incredibly courageous to just reach out with that kind of confidence and self-assuredness to mm. like, no, I just really believe in your company and this is it. Like, I really want to do this. Mm. So once you started, like how, how have things been going? How is your own like practice as an artist going? Where are you mm -hmm. at right now? Yeah, thank you, Cassidy. And yeah, it was, <laughs> it was a hard journey. Um, so I was hired as the studio manager, which originally I was actually applying for a production assistant role but got put in this like managerial role, which I wasn't expecting. <laughs> but it really combined all of the things that I'm good at, which was kind of a surprise to me. On the side, I, I do like executive assistant work. So I, I'm very good with like detailed oriented tasks. I had also been put in a position where I can help build the culture of the studio, which I'm very like, that's very much in my wheelhouse of interests especially having had a few negative experiences in art environments with different teachers. I was like, wow, you know, how can I create a safe space for the artists so that they feel supported? And then also this logistical like aspect to it that's like, it's like empathy with this like really detail oriented thing that I personally am like, that's my strong suit. So I'm really fulfilled at my job. Like I, I feel like I'm utilizing my strengths every day in the position that I do have. So I've been going really strong and the animation industry had a little bit of a lull with the 
the writer strikes and a lot of the different strikes that were happening. But I kept a job throughout that, which actually is very unheard of in animation right now. But I feel very fortunate to like have my job and to have had it throughout that entire process. And yeah, in the meanwhile, I've been taking art classes. So I've been continuing to do that. My boss is very supportive. He actually helps me like reorganize my schedule because I had to take a class in the middle of the day. And he was like, yeah, just work later and uh, end at this time instead so you don't get burnt out. So he's like super considerate and very supportive of me. So I'm really in the greatest environment and not everything's perfect. I don't, I don't think anything will ever be 100% perfect in life or in anything. But I think just the fact that I am taking classes and getting that opportunity to continue to chase my dream is like really amazing. And so I think I'm at that phase now where I'm like not really sure what kind of an artist I want to be. I just know that I want to be one um, and kind of pushing forward from that place. But I figure like if I just keep trying different things in art and challenging myself within the realm of the animation environment, being surrounded by artists is certainly very helpful. <laughs> you know, then I'll figure it out at some point. We'll do a reunion episode a couple years from now. <laughs> Because I'm sure you'll have another experience of finding your voice as an artist. It's so exciting to even have that as kind of a a dilemma, right? Because that means, wow, mm-hmm. you're really, you made it to this point that you are exploring your dream that much that you can really think deeply about, okay, what are the, what are the next steps? I can imagine, you know, a couple of years ago, you might not have even imagined that it would be possible to be having this kind of dilemma. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Thank you so much for sharing so much of just your life and your experiences so far. I have one final question and it's about giving advice. So Mm -hmm. what piece of advice would you give to someone who is struggling to figure out or to pursue their dreams? Yeah, I'm talking to myself now. Uh, that, that, that one advice for yourself right for myself and others as buddhism says so <laughs> I, I i think this quote like always really comes back to me and it's from buddhist philosopher daisaku Keda, and it's from a series where he's discussing with youth life about everything to be honest in life And then he shares this advice about like, how do you figure out what you are here to do? Like what unique value you're gonna add to this world? And I think I'm still in this process, but the quote says, suppose you are lost in the jungle. You wanna find your way out and reach the ocean, but don't know which way to go. What do you do? The answer is to keep moving ahead, taking a course that leads to a river. If you follow the river downstream, you will eventually reach the ocean. So for me, that really means, and what I hope the listeners get from that is that if you don't feel like you know what you're doing, simply moving forward in a direction that you think will lead to the right direction, if you're chanting about it, you know, like you will be led in the proper direction, naturally so. And while I'm still walking that journey of following the rivers to the ocean, And I found many rivers in many ways. I think that what I equate it to is we all want to know what we can contribute to this world. But the only way to figure that out is if we keep moving forward and trying different things. 
So I feel like I'm on the right path, even though I feel lost a lot of the time. <laughs> But what I have found in the past is that nothing is ever wasted. And as long as you're chanting, it's almost like a failsafe that you'll find when you're like really acknowledging your true worth and your power, you'll move in the right direction. So just have faith in that and continue to walk forward. It takes an immense amount of courage to follow a childhood dream. But really, there's no time like the present. Buddhist philosopher Daisaku Ikeda writes about the importance of holding high ideals and working toward them while you're young. He says, Naturally, there are many different ways to live your youth, and there is no need to suggest a single approach for everyone. But whatever path you choose, what will play a decisive role in the direction your life takes into the future is whether you live the days of your youth to the fullest or let them slip by without making any real effort. Second Sokogakai president, Jose Toda, advised, Young people should cherish dreams that seem almost too big to accomplish. Inevitably in life, we're only able to achieve a fraction of what we'd like to. So if your dreams are too small to begin with, you'll end up not being able to accomplish anything. What good then will you have created with your life? Striving to realize a high ideal in your 20s and 30s is the key to enjoying unsurpassed satisfaction and fulfillment in this seemingly long yet short existence. You're only young once. How unfortunate it would be to reach your 40s and 50s and be filled with sadness and regret. A life of discontent. A life unfulfilled and half-realized like a sputtering, smoldering fire that never leaps into bright flames is also a terrible waste. That's why you should burn your brightest and strive your hardest in your youth when you are at the height of your powers and your health. It is all for your own benefit. Mr. Toda taught that young people should cherish high ideals and advance with bright, burning energy. The higher the summit you aim for, the greater satisfaction you will savor when you reach the peak. This is the way of life filled with passion and growth, brimming with the limitless power of faith in the mystic law. And Kyle is living his life that way, working toward the dreams he held in his childhood. So, what are your long-held dreams? Have you decided to pursue them? I mean, it's now or never, right? For next week's episode, we want to know one thing you tell yourself when you're facing self-doubt. If you'd like to connect with a local Buddhist community near you, you can email us at connect at buddhability.org. Until next time, thanks for listening.